The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, we are almost there, so well done for staying the course. And uh, it's been, a, in some respects, a long week in terms of the amount that's been conveyed, but in some respects it also seems to have gone really quickly. And uh, here we are, Saturday, um, and close to the end. And so I do want to finish um, my contribution, at least, in terms of uh, positive uh, as to why what we're about and what we've been teaching uh, throughout the week uh, works. You know, as Dr. Masson and I were just discussing the other day how the problem with pragmatism is that it isn't pragmatic. It doesn't actually work. <laughs> what works is uh, the gospel because we have a power from beyond history. So um, <clears throat> as we've heard about all the problems in that last session there from IJM, uh, I always feel that I would prefer to do my section on biblical penology directly after an IJM session on the sex trade industry. Uh, it would go over better. <laughs> at that juncture. But the woman who wrote biblical law into the Western legal tradition was herself sold into slavery as a little girl, Theodora, rescued by a Christian presbyter, marries the son of a military commander, Justin, uh, who becomes emperor, who dies. Justinian becomes emperor, Theodora, a girl who'd been a slave, becomes empress of all of Rome and write scripture into the law of the land. So who knows what, can be, what God can do through a slave. Now that's the hope of the gospel. I want to read um, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, let's read Ephesians chapter 1 together. By the way, when you're a parent, you will never be able to look at things like that the same way again. I have two little girls. One is eight, one is 11. And uh, it, imp- it impacts you differently. You may think you're horrified now. Wait till you've got some children of your own. Paul the Apostle, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, And who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him 
with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason... I too, having heard of the faith of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your, your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Quintessential Paul in terms of the inheritance of salvation and the calling of God's people. About a year ago I read an article about the Anglican Church in England where it was related that the present average age of the members is now 61 and at the recent General Synod in York, the church was warned that it was, and I quote, impeccably managing itself into failure. <laughs> in the last 40 years, the numbers of adult churchgoers has halved, and numbers of children has dropped by four-fifths. Four-fifths. The Reverend Dr. Patrick Richmond, Synod member from Norwich, told the meeting projections suggested the church would no longer be functionally extinct in 20 years. They see this as a demographic time bomb, and I quote, that requires, listen to this, urgent national recruitment drive to attract more members. Now, where is the Christ of Ephesians 2, Ephesians 1, in a statement like that? Where is the power of the gospel? Where is the potency of the Holy Spirit? Where is even a rudimentary understanding of the headship of Christ, the hope of the gospel? What you have there is 
<coughs> looking at the decline of the church and the response is a purely pragmatic one we need an urgent national recruitment drive who do they think they're going to recruit like it's the rotary club This is indeed a recipe for death. It's the impeccable management of failure. And we can't be part of that as a church, as a people. The leading historian Mark Knoll of Notre Dame, after describing the collapse of the influence of Anglicanism on the public sphere in Canada and a subsequent loss of a Christian vision for Canada says this. He says, By the 1940s, representatives of Canada's other churches, up the non-Anglican ones, were beginning to manifest strength. They were represented by a host of conservative evangelical bodies. More recently, countrywide associations like the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada have begun the process of drawing local bodies into some sort of national cohesion. Yet although such, such efforts have become increasingly important, they have not affected Society, as Catholics and older prophet, Protestants had once done. For various reasons, ethnicity, language, a passivity-inducing holiness theology, or a stultifying fixation on biblical prophecy, these other Christians have often been content to remain in self-contained social, intellectual, and cultural ghettos. But when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus... <coughs> Paul is awaiting trial from prison. When Paul wrote, when Paul penned Ephesians chapter 1, he's in prison. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's not thinking about the all-conquering power of Nero. He's not meditating upon the fact that here he is in jail, chained up, very limited freedom. How does he describe himself? He says he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul considers his chains in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, Paul never identifies himself as a prisoner of Rome. He always identifies himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The Christ has been given all authority and all power. And Paul, even though he's in prison, says... I'm his ambassador. He's an ambassador from jail, as far as he's concerned. He still represents the king of the universe. Now, when he pens this letter to the church, he's writing to one of the centers. Ephesus was one of the great centers of the cult of the Roman Empire. It had a vision for uh, total statism, and it was a center of imperial authority. To a new church in such a context, Paul writes in this first chapter of the church as the place where the glory and the power of God is being manifest to all authority and all power. Coming back to Luke's astute question earlier on in the week, what's the point? <clears throat> Just reminding him of it. Right? <laughs> Here it is. That even if we're in prison, we are Christ's Ambassadors, And for Paul, his situation is not a the, the seemingly dire situation he's in. A persecuted church, first century, in prison, is a cause for praise and intercessory prayer. He's not moping about. None of what you've heard this week should lead you to be moping about. Quite the opposite. 
The absolute opposite response. The key to victory is in the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit through his church. So Paul begins with this chapter really with an act of praise. I haven't got time to cover it all because I'm determined to be short. Which will be a miracle, but I, I am determined to be short. Um, he begins this, this, uh, this letter with an act of praise. And then in verses 10 uh, through 13... He talks about, he begins to unfold the salvation history of God's work. What does he say here? He says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. He talks about what we've attained as inheritance through predestination according to his will. To the end that we who were to first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. We've heard the message of truth, the gospel, verse 13, the gospel of our salvation. We've believed. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is what he's telling the church. This is who we are. It's God's people. It's been unfolding through a series of times and now, he says, we're in the messianic age. It's time for the summing up of all things in Christ. The bringing together of all the pieces in history. And it reaches its climax with the advent of Christ. All things, all creation in heaven and earth, he says, is being subdued under Jesus Christ. And he says so from prison. The Christian era must run its course. Until the final consummation of all things, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, is manifest by the defeat of death itself, which is the last enemy to be defeated. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. So everything, Paul says, will finally add up to Christ. You say to yourself, <clears throat> a lot of things have added up this week, but I've not seen it all adding up to Christ. No, precisely, because it's a process. It's God's work in history. It's the predestined counsel of his will that through Christ, through his people, everything will finally add up. The equation will amount to Christ, who's all in all. His preeminence and its universal recognition will restore, finally, Harmony to God's created order. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 8 through 18 through 21. And we have an apportioned heritage, Paul says, as his heirs. We are heirs of Christ, and that means we have an appointed heritage. James Boyce, in his commentary, says, Israel was regarded as the Lord's inheritance and portion. The church, as constituting the new Israel, now enters into the same privilege. This apportionment is said to stem from the divine foreordination. You know what that means? It means that the God-allotted, apportioned inheritance that Paul speaks about here for his church, we as co-heirs, uh, as his sons, is one that God allotted before time began. Can't be taken from us. Can't be taken from you. It's all in terms of the counsel of his will and his purpose throughout history that we shall have our inheritance. It's been appointed by God already. 
Before time began, says Paul. It's the seasons. It's now the administration of, the, of Christ. The age of the Messiah. And this is all done in terms of the total meaning established by God. When you read about all things being done after the counsel of his will, that means there is a total meaning in everything. It means there is absolutely nothing that can happen to you that is not part of God's absolute meaning for all things. You see, things will either be meaningless or meaningful. That's why Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without my father. Everything happens in terms of God's total meaning after the counsel of his own will. God is going to accomplish his purpose. You know, when things happen that we don't understand and that we don't like, which is often, I just got an email letting me know that a lady in our church has just passed away from cancer. It was quite sudden. The only thing that can give people hope at the end of the day is finally this. God has a purpose in it. And you might not see the meaning now or fully understand the meaning, but everything will add up to Christ. That's the meaning of the gospel. Everything will finally add up. We may not be able to make the equation balance in our minds now, but there is a total meaning. Not a hair from your head falls to the ground without my father, Jesus says, not a sparrow from the sky. So Paul enters into a great prayer of intercession for the church. He says, I always remember you in my prayers because I heard of your faith in the Lord. He says, so you're in my heart, you're in my prayers. There he is in prison. If I was writing the letter from prison, I know I'd be saying, please pray for me. I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm in chains. You know, Paul doesn't actually ask for prayer in this opening passage. He says, I remember you in my prayers. And here's what I'm praying for you about. His unremitting remembrance, he offers prayers of thanks and intercession to the Father of glory. And it was necessary, he says, that they be quickened with spiritual power and wisdom because he wants them to know God and who they are in God, more fully. What does he say in verse 18? That the eyes of the understanding, or heart, may be enlightened, so that they may grasp what God has made available to them as his church. And that's what God wants you to know this week. After all you've heard about all the challenges, God wants you to know what he is, made, is making available to you by the Holy Spirit in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says you need to be enlightened. What does he want them to be enlightened about? Their hope, their calling and their inheritance. Their hope, their calling, their inheritance. As Boyce puts it, he wants them to appreciate that they inherit all the wealth of God himself. So Paul's desire is they might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, their eyes of their understanding being enlightened. What does he want them to see first? This hope of their calling. Now when you talk to most Christians about the Christian hope, what do they tend to immediately think of? Heaven. heaven. The Christian hope. Oh, we've got the hope of heaven. That's true. 
Right? There is individual hope of actually not the sweet by and by up there somewhere, but actually the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the promise of Scripture. There is that hope, but there's more than that. There's a corporate future here, a corporate hope for God's church that we have in Christ for time and eternity. It's something about the future. Their hope is to do with their corporate inheritance. Second, he says that specifically he has in mind their calling. What is the hope of his calling? That our hope is actually, as God's people, tied up with our calling to serve him. It's not in imagining an Islamic vision of heaven with 70 virgins uh, and being fanned in an armchair. Thanks, God, just flip it over. Thank you. Sorry about that. <clears throat> that's the second time that's happened. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Where in, in, in idleness we enjoy some uh, retirement-style paradise. No. It is to do with our calling. And the third thing he wants us to understand is the riches of the glory of his inheritance, which is ours now as a kingdom of priests to God. And finally, he wants us to understand something incredible. The exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. The exceeding greatness of his power. How does he say that's been demonstrated? Well, it's been demonstrated, yes, through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus. An incomparably great power. So Paul piles the synonyms one on top of the other. Power, strength, might. He's trying to convey the vital power that is yours and mine through the Lord Jesus. So the last thing you should go away with today is a sense of powerlessness. The universal, uh, the church, the early church, in this, uh, uh, viewed this particular text, Ephesians 1, as alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1, which exalts the Lord's anointed. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord, there's two lords there, it's a Trinitarian text. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the allusions that Paul gives to us are spatial. He talks about the right hand. Uh, that isn't primarily a place. It's not that he's saying, well, you know, the Christ is on the right side of God in heaven. Rather, it's a symbol of total authority. The right hand is the place of authority. So what Paul is saying is he, he is in the place of total authority. He seated him at his right hand. Furthermore, the heavenly realms isn't outer space. It's the realm of angelic conflict where the powers, the authorities, where the battle rages. He's not, again, talking spatially about the out there, but the spiritual conflict, all the realms of power and authority. And in verse 21, his being far above 
is not about the dimensions. And of course, when you're a child, you think about the spatial dimensions. And I, when I thought about God, about Christ, I was, always thought, well, he's far above. But of course, the meaning of this, this far above, is not spatial. It's his superiority to all things, his rule, arche, his authority, exousia, his power, dunamis. These all belong to Christ now, not tomorrow, not next week. Paul doesn't say, and then eventually Christ will be. He says, this is who we serve now. Now, if this wasn't the case, our situation would be hopeless. (laughs) We would have cause for despair. We would have a sense of powerlessness. But the rea- this is the reality. Paul does not say this is going to be the case. He says this is the case and I'm telling you from prison. And this means finally that all things are subject to him. There is no living title in heaven or on earth known to men or angels that is not subject to Christ. That's what Paul is saying. There is no title anywhere in the cosmos or in the spiritual realm that is not subject to Christ. And so the conclusion of that is, Paul tells us, everything is under his feet. Verse 22. He gave him head over all things to the church. Everything is under his feet. Now think about this for a moment. Everything's been subordinated to Christ, and then God gives us a gift. Christ. So that everything is placed in subjection to him, and he gives him as head, as the head over all things. He then says, this Christ is given to you, the church. He's the one we serve. The head over all things is given to us as God's people. That's why Paul could say, if God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It seems clear that Paul has in mind Psalm 8.6 when he says, when the psalmist says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The true man, Jesus Christ, everything has been made subject to him. Boyce again, let me quote uh, James Boyce, he's helpful. He says, the psalmist affirms, this is Psalm 8, man's, uh, man's dominion on earth. Here Paul claims that Christ, as God's new man, has universal dominion. Man largely forfeited his status through sin, but through Christ, as the ideal man, he restored his proper dignity. So far from constituting a threat to the realization of true humanity, the Christian gospel provides the only means by which it can be attained. The church has authority and power to overcome all opposition because her leader and head is Lord of all. That's why IJM has the right to go into all these other countries and deliver slaves, actually. That's the source of our authority. That's why you've got the right to go into the courts, to go into the hospitals, to go into all of these different spheres, because there is no higher authority than the name of Christ. That's where, our, finally, our accreditation comes from. So Christ is the one 
who has been given as head over all things to the church, the ecclesia, the called out people of God, those who are assembled in terms of the public affairs of the kingdom of God. You know, the uh, common term for the congregation of the ecletoi was exactly that in the Greek world, those who assembled in terms of the public affairs of a free state or realm in the Greco-Roman world. And Paul says, we are the people of the king of kings and we assemble in terms of the public affairs of the kingdom of God. And so we are an international body called to live in terms of Christ's universal jurisdiction, called by a divine herald who has total power and we can only function uh, legitimately in submission to the Lord Jesus. So our hope, Paul tells us, is in this calling. Not in saying, right, how can I live it easy as a believer till heaven, until the rapture. But our hope is actually in our calling as called out citizens for time and eternity. Because you're in an apprenticeship right now, an, apprentice, an apprenticeship for eternity. The riches of his inheritance is found, yes, in fellowship with God. His dwelling with us, our covenantal inheritance, though, of the whole earth, of the whole cosmos, as joint heirs of all things, Scripture says, with Christ. That's our inheritance. That we are joint heirs as brothers of the Son. Remember the inheritance laws of Numbers 27? Well, they apply to our relationship with Christ. We're his children. And so we are joint heirs with the Son. Jesus said himself, the meek shall inherit a small strip of land in Palestine. <laughs> Didn't he? No, he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Paul tells us in Romans 4, it's the cosmos. Later in Ephesians 3.10, Paul says that the unsearchable riches of Christ, you should note these texts now and go and meditate on them, the unsearchable riches of Christ through whom all things have been created, these things have now been revealed. Why? Paul says, for this reason, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to all power and authority according to God's eternal purposes. So that all rule and all authority that's made known through God's people. That is the gathering together, Ephesians 1.10, or in one, all things in Christ which are in heaven and in earth. And that's your inheritance and mine. So think about it this way. <clears throat> Have you ever wished your dad was rich? Huh? You know, if you have a really wealthy parent, you're coming into a sizable inheritance. Right? Your university uh, uh, fees get paid. Probably your dad can afford to buy you a car. Right? A really wealthy father is a blessing. Right? Well, your father owns everything. Everything. That's what Paul is saying. He owns absolutely everything. And he is bringing us into our inheritance of all things. 
Now this is the this is the biblical this is biblical theology. This is the foundation upon which we have to understand our calling into our varied spheres. That all things are under his authority and dominion, and he is our head, our covenant head. And our task now is, the Puritans put it this way, I love this, I never tire of quoting this, to assert the crown rights of King Jesus. That's our calling. To assert the crown rights of King Jesus. We've got some mopping up skirmishes to do in history. He's already won the major battle, but we've got to pursue them to the trees. Okay, we've got to run them to the river. We've got to chase the hordes of Mordor down and finish them off. That's the, that's the image. And this, the fact that Christ claims everything shouldn't surprise us. What does Paul say in Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 18? Listen, listen to, just listen to the words of Paul concerning the Lord Jesus, who claims everything for himself. In terms of Colossians 1, 15 through 18, this is what Paul writes. He says, he, this is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So in that all things, what does Paul leave out? Nothing. Every square inch of the cosmos is covered. In terms of the all things, in heaven, in earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, authorities, everything. And he is the head, Paul says, again he reminds us, of the body. So Christ, the creator of all things, why would it shock you, or me, that Christ who created all things, governs all things, owns all things, should come to reclaim all things? To reconcile all things to himself, his property rights, his preeminence in all things. And that's why we're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that we are to bring all things into captivity to Christ. That's what he says. Where things have been raised up against the knowledge of God, he says we pull it down. Those are the strongholds we pull down. Everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take every, every thought captive. And here really we have a doctrine of the church, part of it. We're a called out body, we're created, Paul tells us in that first, uh, in Ephesians 1 there, that's what he begins with, that we're created by an act of grace. We're called out by an act of grace. It's not because you're better than anybody else. Not because you're more worthy than anybody else. Not because you're more gifted or more intelligent than anybody else. It's by the grace of God. Who called you according to his purpose. According to the counsel of his will. It's not of him who runs or whatever. But it's by his purpose. That you've been called. So it's not arrogance. It's not arrogant presumption. You're only part of his church, of his people, by grace. And you're sent out in his authority. His authority. 
So when an ambassador goes to represent a given country to the government, to another, a foreign government, the foreign government doesn't say, how arrogant you are, do you, who do you think you are representing the United States here? No, if he's the ambassador of the United States, he represents the authority of the United States. Not because of the, it's like the police, okay? Think about the police for a moment. Law enforcement. You ever been uh, driving along the road slightly overdoing it? And a five foot three lady steps out into the road. She's got a little sort of speed gun in her hand. And she maybe looks like she's had too many donuts the week before or whatever. And then she steps out and she puts her hand out like this. Why do you stop? Do you stop because a five foot three lady's just stepped out into the road and waved at you? No. You stop because she represents an authority. She's wearing a uniform. She represents the provincial authority. And that is the reason you stop. Well, when you step out in terms of Christ, you're not doing it because you're... She doesn't do that because she's arrogant and proud. She does it because she's an officer of the law. And when you as a Christian testify for Christ, live for him, apply his word, it's not because you're being arrogant, as the world might say, or don't ever think that that's the issue. It's that you represent, you're an ambassador. You represent Christ. And actually, <clears throat> when you represent Christ's authority, people will stop. We are a people of the King of Kings, and the early church believed that, which means a calling to reign in life, to live our lives under God, our families, our communities, our society, till the very order of things, even till the administrations of government recognize and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul says to us, it doesn't matter what our current circumstances are, Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We're not just having a good day on the battlefield. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are a kingdom of priests under the great high priest. And he says we're intercessors. We're a kingly priesthood. That's literally what the Bible means. We are, we are a royal, a kingly priesthood. Imagine what it would be uh, like to actually be directly associated with the royal family. To be a prince. I discovered uh, a little while back that on my mother's side of the family we're actually descended from the royal house of Stuart. A little bit distant, but it's funny when I discovered that in the family chair, I thought, mm, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, that feels right to me. That's <laughs> because there's a sense of... A sense of, oh, I'm important because I'm, even if distantly connected with royalty, I feel significant. Well, that's what the Bible says we are. We are royalty. We're a kingly priesthood in Jesus Christ. And we are the light of the world. Those who intercede, by the way, are higher in rank than those for whom they intercede. And we're told to intercede on behalf of governments. See, there is a 
there's a hierarchy there, right? Our great high priest, he's got a rank above us. We're also priests, we're priest kings. I think it was uh, Charles Spurgeon who said, if you're called to preach, don't stoop to being prime minister. Now, <clears throat> he was a preacher, of course. <clears throat> he understood the significance of his calling. Charles Finney was training in law and was a lawyer. And uh, when he was called to ministry, uh, a man came into the law office. And actually, it was shortly after Finney's conversion. And he knew he had been called to preach. And the man came into his legal office and he said, I, I need you to take a case for me. He said... I have a retainer from the Lord, and I must plead his cause. Can't take the job, sorry. Now, your retainer from the Lord is to go into law. My retainer is to plead his cause in a different context. But we are all on retainer from the Lord. And we have been granted this responsibility. Now, we're accustomed in our day so much to seeing the church in retreat that considering our chosen status and position in Christ, who sends us out with the apparently arrogant calling of teaching all things he has commanded and disciplining the nations, sounds like a frightening one, sounds like an intimidating calling, seems far-fetched. Is that really the meaning of the gospel? It sounds far-fetched. But actually that is our calling, and if we as a church can't be governed by it, how do we ever expect to impact a nation? If we don't believe this, we will impeccably manage failure. We'll impeccably manage the church into failure. We've seen, yes, that you've heard all about it this week, so I won't cover it. Rapid secularization, paganization. We've seen increasingly socio-cultural irrelevance and insignificance for the church. Our buildings are shutting down and so on. But our forebears didn't actually roll over and die when these things happened. They didn't say, well, let's just wait for the second coming. You know, the uh, average Christian evangelical two, three hundred years ago was trained, taught, catechized, and affirmed in their calling as a holy and sacred calling, whether they were a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. They didn't see the faith as kind of like akin to a, a spare time personalist philosophy like golf or yoga. You know, you go to church, that's great, I'm glad that works for you. I, you know, I, do, I, I go to yoga class or I play golf, and people think they're saying something. I've got a membership at Good Life, you know, so I'm glad church works for you. That is not how our forebears understood the faith privatized, pietized. They weren't irrelevant lamps under a bed. They did believe, not always consistently, but many of our forebears truly believed that his was the name that is above every name. And it's ironic in an age where evangelicals are often obsessed with relevance with being seeker-sensitive, developing corporate megachurch consumer paradigms, growth movements, emergent church, go-with-the-flow vibes and all of this, that we've never been so patently irrelevant in the name of relevance. It's because we don't actually believe the biblical theology of the church. 
If we retreat endlessly and accommodate ourselves to these antithetical philosophies of our time, we will be impotent in the face of a neo-pagan culture. And so, as we've heard repeatedly throughout this week, we must present a full-orbed gospel in word and deed that is faithful to all of Scripture. You know, one um, American uh, pastor, Brian Abshire, he made this very insightful comment about the Puritans. This is what he said. Listen closely. He says, The Puritans did not see Christianity as a spare-time religious philosophy to help them cope with an angst-ridden world. To the contrary, their religious convictions brought suffering, persecution, imprisonment, and death. They integrated their reform doctrine with a consistent biblical worldview which offered practical application for every area of life. If God granted modern American evangelical Christians a new continent filled with wilderness and wild beasts, and then they were allowed to settle and form a new Christian nation there, we could not do today what our spiritual forebears did. Most Christians would say that it couldn't be done because the Bible doesn't give us a blueprint for building a Christian culture. Others would say it shouldn't be done. We're living in the last days, so why waste the limited resources? Therefore, it wouldn't be done because you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. That's a pretty astute statement. Is it possible that compared to our forebears, we've been privatized, pietized, spiritualized by this truncated vision that doesn't bear any resemblance to Ephesians 1 in our churches? Let me conclude. Paul's affirmation of this unconquerable power of God is manifest then in Christ who's far above all power and authority. And so we have to begin the struggle that you've been hearing about this week theologically, not pragmatically. We'll quickly get tired, discouraged, wearied, and uh, tired out and want to quit if we begin pragmatically. We have to begin with our theological roots deep. The non-Christian philosophies that are abounding in our time and in our nation may be deceptive, but they are hopelessly inadequate views of reality, as I think Scott in particular has shown very clearly. Uh, They are idiocy. So those ideas in themselves can't account for our decline, can they? Is it possible that actually the reason for the decline is that we as God's people have lacked covenant faithfulness to God? Just like we've seen the results in British Anglicanism today. Our recourse actually, as Jenny pointed out, is repentance and the recapturing of a biblical vision of the church in our time. Because the church, as one commentator has put it, is God's armory for the application of the aspects of God's image. The church issues God's conscription trains the troops for action, sends them out weekly to conquer in Christ's name. How do we develop such a living, vibrant church? Well, as all of you have realized this week, the ministry is not about the cost, the building, the institution. The ministry, the ecclesia, is about being, all of us being a called-out kingdom of priests. So many Christians still associate ministry with doing something in church. They think, I'm not serving God unless I'm, oh, well, Edith does the flowers and, you know, I serve down at the table. Well, that's great. Those are all important acts of service. But they think, I'm not serving God in ministry unless I'm doing something in the church building. And that's just a fraction of what it means. Just the tiniest fraction of what it means. 
to be in service to the King of Kings. Our forebears saw the city, the community, the whole realm as the sphere of God's reign, not simply the church property. Ministry happens out there. Actually, the way we built buildings reflected that. If you look at the architecture of churches in the West previously, we built a beautiful, ornate sanctuary as a house of glory and and usually a school on the site. It wasn't a sprawling great suburban place where you could park your car, have your car washed while you're in church there and buy a Christian burger in the, you know, with maybe some stigmata on the burger, like if, um, and, and, and have a Christian barber doing your hair as you're on your way out. This is the kind of thing you see in Chicago, where, the, where everything is in, in, a, in a, it may be a big ghetto, but it's still a ghetto. No, the ministry calling is out there. Transformation comes when by regeneration and rebuilding we are faithful to God in all of these institutions, all of these spheres. And when a righteous people who've received the gospel look to the public social good, they start to demand righteous laws and righteous education. We do this then because we have an ultimate calling to judge. Did you know that's what Paul says about you? That you have a calling ultimately to rule and judge. He says, do you not know that you shall govern and rule, judge angels? If we understood what our calling is in God, you see, Paul actually put uh, our... Um, the church's failure to understand its role down to a poor eschatology. (laughs) We shall judge even the angels. And actually, when you look back in the church's history, you see that judgment was part of its calling. When Constantine came to power, he didn't create Christian courts by imperial fiat. He recognized that the churches were already giving justice. The bishops, you know, did you know that Paul the Apostle actually commissions the creation of Christian courts? In his letter to the church at Corinth. He says, why do you go to law against your brother? Are there not wise men among you who can judge in these matters? It'd be better that you be defrauded than Christian go to law against Christian. And the church took Paul seriously and they started all kinds of Christian courts. And when Constantine came to Paris, he said, the Roman courts are all slow. The judges are slow. They don't give justice. The people look to you. So you bishops, you are now going to function as judges of the realm. Not just of the church questions. You're going to function as judges of the realm. And, well, let me uh, quote to you one historian. The church took Paul seriously and the church courts became the courts of justice. Their record was sufficiently good to attract pagans who wanted justice, knowing that the Roman courts were slow and unjust. When Constantine came to power, he recognized this aspect of the church's governmental power, and in certain areas he invested all bishops with legal magisterial powers. With this magisterial power went the garb and insignia of such an office, and bishops to this day wear the insignia of a Roman magistrate. For 600 years, bishops provided effective government. All that regalia of the bishop that you see on there, you think, what is that get-up? Those were the robes of a Roman magistrate. 
For 600 odd years, they gave justice to the people. Now, I'm not suggesting, don't take me, get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that the, we should uh, make all the bishops and the clergy the judges. I'm saying that because the church gave justice in Christian courts, it was the state that started to look to the church for justice, to define justice, to prophetically, prophetically guide the course of justice, not the other way around. Now, you might say, Joe, we're a long way from such things. Sure we are. Well, the Muslims are getting their Sharia tribunals, aren't they? Across Europe. They're starting their own courts. We should be thinking, I've challenged some of you, and I've talked to lawyers about this before, Christian lawyers should start now Christian legal courts of arbitration in this country. They're absolutely legal. They can be started. So you offer here judgments... Uh, here, here are cases, settle disputes between Christians. It can all be done through contract so that Christians are getting justice from Christians who are mature in the word of God. And you wait and see how many others then come to the Christians to settle their arbitrations because they're done justly and righteously and truthfully. It wasn't just the courts. They exercised their uh, influence and authority Think about this, St. John Chrysostom, early church father, preacher in the 4th century, when the Christians in Constantinople were just 100,000, he maintained through the church tithe 50,000 poor. He supported 3,000 clergy, sorry, 3,000 widows and all of the clergy. All of it was funded by the church. In fact, the church transformed the world by its recognition and application of the lordship of Christ over all of these areas. You know what? Listen to what even opponents of the church said. I'm quoting a historian now. The apostate emperor Julian, Julian the apostate he was known as, recognized that pagans were attracted to Christianity by its community life. He said, quote, no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans support, by that he means the Christians, not only their own poor but ours as well. The shepherd of Hermas wrote to, of the Christian duty to care for widows and orphans, to relieve distressed believers, practice hospitality, reverence the age, practice justice, preserve their brotherhood. All the early literature stressed such responsibilities. Prisoners seized by raiders were ransomed by the church. The church, like the Jewish synagogue, acted as a trustee for widows and orphans, and Cyprian compared the clergy with the Levites of the Old Testament in their responsibility. The sick and captives of two visited church buildings included room for storage and provisions for the needy. Basil the Great used monks to staff schools, orphanages, and hospitals. This is what the church did. They didn't sit around saying, who's written the latest book on the end times? Epicenter, how Middle Eastern oil will affect your future. Best-selling book a few years ago here in Canada, amongst the Christian church. They got on with the work of the gospel. A collapsing order became a Christian order. It begins with Christians taking Ephesians chapter 1 seriously. And if we actually believed Ephesians 1, the church would be utterly transformed. You know why? You hear the verse every, time, every year at Christmas, but do we really listen? The government shall be upon his shoulders. The government shall be upon 
his shoulders, and his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we've been, in the history of the world, there have been three land grants. The first was Eden. We forfeited it through sin. And we were thrown out. The second land grant was Canaan, promised to Abraham, the people of Israel. They sinned, they rebelled, finally excommunicated by the Lord himself as a nation state. That was the second land grant. The third land grant is the whole earth. It's ours to inherit, and that's your calling, and it's mine. That's what we should take away this week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.